Hey sister, welcome back to the Your Sorority Journey podcast. Over the past month, I'm sure that you have done various educational programming or lecture series or really dug into sexual assault prevention on your campus. As April is Sexual Assault Prevention Month, there is typically a lot of programming we do on college campuses, in fraternity and sorority life, around this topic that remains to be a prominent problem, a a huge area of disconnect in our community from who we say we are and what we are doing. I wanted to end the month talking about how our organizations, how our sorority communities can cultivate a culture of care, support, and empathy for survivors to really embody what sisterhood means in a different level. We invited Jamie Devin Wilson on the podcast today. She is an advocate in areas of sexual assault awareness, recruitment, retention, sisterhood as a fraternity and sorority life advisor at the University of New Hampshire and also a sorority speaker. She is sharing part of her story today, and through that, I wanted to provide you all a little disclaimer about what we will be talking about on the podcast. This episode contains the topic areas of sexual assault and rape prevention and advocacy. While the details of a rape or assault are not disclosed, the content of this podcast could be uncomfortable and or triggering to you. Jamie and I would love for you to listen, but take time for yourself throughout. Take care of you. Know that there are resources nationally and locally to support you. And sister, you are not alone. I also wanted to provide the the National Sexual Assault Hotline if anything comes up that you feel like you need to talk to someone about immediately through the conversations we have on the podcast today. 1-800-656-4673. Thank you for showing up today. Thank you for tuning in to an episode that you know ahead of time might be a little heavier than some of the others that we have on. Through showing up today, you are committing to be present, if not for yourself, then definitely a sister. Here's my conversation with Jamie. Hey sister, Cassie Little here to welcome you to your sorority journey, a podcast for sisters to find guidance and confidence in any season of their membership. Our rockstar guests and I have intentional conversations, discuss unpopular topics, and provide relevant encouragement to be an extension of your sisterhood. So thanks for inviting us on your journey. Are you ready to dive in? Welcome to the Your Sorority Journey podcast, Jamie. I am so excited to have our like shared passions cross on this platform. I totally agree. Thank you so much for having me. How's your week going? It's going great. I mean, it was awesome. I got to speak to you yesterday, but I I know. (laughs) And I work at the University of New Hampshire. So it's been a really crazy busy week, but it's been uh, some important work is getting done. So it's really, I love my job. So it's nice to get it all done. Yeah, I can't wait to dive into that. I know being on a college campus right now is probably hectic with finals right around the corner um, as we're going to talk about Sexual Assault Awareness Month is wrapping up. So I'm sure it's been a lot of programming in your community. So I can only imagine the chaos that's happening right now. Yes, definitely. I mean, with COVID and everything, it's been a huge shift, but I think it's been a huge opportunity for people to dive deeper than maybe Mm. certain level programming, which it's been really interesting to see. Yeah. Okay. Quick question about that. How are you feeling as a university staff member about the potential transition into more of like a hybrid or in-person experience in the fall with so many students getting vaccinated right now? Yeah. So we've, my, the campus that I work at, we've been fully back on campus since the fall. Um, but they've had restrictions and not a lot yeah. of events in person recruitment was completely virtual. And so I am so excited. The majority of our community has already gotten vaccinated. And so I cannot wait <laughs> till we can yeah. be with other people and just kind of utilize some of the great experiences that we found in some of the virtual stuff that we've done and then kind of marry that with some of the normal programming that would be on a college campus. Oh my gosh. I feel like we could have a whole conversation about this. And this is like, April was really the first month that my brain started spinning. Right. Because since her story journey has started, we have been so focused on how do we pivot? How do we make the most of a virtual experience? Right. But 
in the past year, we've learned so much from doing things virtually that it would be such a, such a shame, such a waste to abandon that experience when we get to go back in person. So I love your, your thoughts on how we could Ah, oh, maybe yeah. marry that in the fall. Super cool. Yeah. Um, well, Jamie, we're here to get to know you better. So would you walk us through your sorority journey through where you are today? Yeah. Wow. That's a lot, I think. So let's go back. I joined um, the University of Rhode Island Phi Sigma Sigma in 2006. So now that makes me seem real old, but I promise you, I don't feel that old. <laughs> Um, I joined in 2006 as a first semester freshman. I remember like standing on the front steps of Phi Gamma Delta fraternity where the sorority Phi Sigma Sigma lived um, behind their house. And I I mean, I still remember that day. And I remember that moment of no, like kind of knowing that that was my home. Um, So I joined in 2006. I became a leader very quickly, very interested in recruitment uh, as a younger member. And then as a junior, I became the recruitment chair for my organization. And then as a senior, I was the vice president of recruitment for the Panhellenic Council. Uh, And then after that, I went on to be a consultant for Phi Sigma Sigma's national organization. Um, And from there, I was a regional consultant, a house director, a membership manager, um, and all of that kind of, you know, brewed this passion of, I want to see more long-term, you know, tangible impact Mm. on a campus, which made me think, what could I do? And everyone said, you need to go get your master's. You have to go back for, you know, in higher ed. And so that's what I did. I went to Northeastern University uh, for my master's degree, where I um, had my internship at Northeastern. So I worked with the sorority women there, which was an amazing experience. And it's just sorority has been tied in my blood, sweat and tears through my professional career. Um, And then ultimately it landed me at University of New Hampshire and where I oversee all of fraternity and sorority life. Man, well, so many of the hats that you have held through your collegiate experience and beyond have touched recruitment or retention in some way or another as a younger member what drew you to that component of membership so it's so interesting but it might be so superficial i've always been the type of person that loved to meet other people and i oh, love i don't think that's superficial yes. i thought you were take that a whole different direction <laughs> yes yes no no and i love the feeling of uh you know just making somebody feel wanted and loved mm. and that's so horny but you know I love doing that. And I love the feeling of, you know, making a new friend. And I feel like recruitment, especially sorority recruitment, when we could talk about superficial for a different reason. Right. Um, yeah. I, I feel like those conversations and the connections that if you have members in an organization that truly value those conversations and those connections, that those can be impactful conversations and mentorship experiences for the rest of their lives. Um, and I've always felt that way. So I feel like early on, I kind of gravitated to how can I help other women feel the same love and respect that I have for my organization, for other women and other women's organizations on campus. Yeah. And when you talk about those more long lasting takeaways, like making someone feel wanted is a lifelong skill, right? Agreed, agreed. (laughs) Fundamental need, like for like when you grow up, maybe have kids or a significant other, or even just like your friendships and community, like we all crave belonging and feeling wanted. And you're so right. Recruitment really is every, like every woman who ends up joining an organization, it's their first taste of what belonging looks like in our community and the way we handle those conversations and the seriousness and the intentionality that we give each and every potential member who walks through our doors could be that lifelong memory or could really shape her concept of belonging. I mean, like, look at you and I, right? We literally live, breathe fraternity and sorority life several years after graduating, because I'm sure some of those conversations are lifelong takeaways, you know? Yeah, I totally agree. And I feel like for undergraduates specifically, you know, those moments where they feel, you know, nervous or anxious to be the person on the other side, to let them not just feel belong, you know, like they belong there, but that 
those conversations matter. It's just, mm. it's, it makes, it makes every individual, if you're really intentional, it makes every individual feel like they matter and that they belong somewhere so much bigger than themselves. So it's, it's just such a, I think an amazing feeling. And that's what connected me to really gravitating towards recruitment and retention. Yeah. So you had this like calling on your heart as a younger member. How did that grow from, I want to get involved as a leader to, I want to make this a profession. I have a mentor. uh, She's a five Sigma Sigma woman. um, And she came to my sorority multiple times. Um, She was the grand archon. So the CEO of the sorority for seven years. um, And it overlapped when I was an undergraduate. And, you know, I'm from New Jersey originally, and she's from New Jersey. She actually was a member uh, or is a member of the Rutgers chapter and was an advisor there. Um, And throughout my whole experience, both as an undergraduate and then as a consultant and a young professional, and even to this day, um, her mentorship just that, that sisterhood, that bond, that feeling of ha- being supported no matter how low I was or how high I was, it just made me want to do that for other women. Mm, I love that. And so you want to do that for other women first, first five Sigma Sigma, right? Like yeah. consultant, staff role. And then like you got your master's, found yourself at University of New Hampshire. Yeah. What was the transition? Like before we even talk about the the third role. I kind of like, I kind of view your like professional career, like three phases. Yeah, 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 definitely. What was the transition like even just between a staff role and a, um, like a university role? Yeah. I think it's really different, right? So, you know, working for five Sigma Sigma, like you said, it was trying to make that impact in my kind of immediate community. And you do this for a living too. So you understand like, that that connection, that mentorship, sometimes it comes really easy for women that already crave it, right? So when I worked with Five Sigma, I felt that like I was making an impact, of course, and I loved my position and I loved all the different positions and ways I moved through that organization. But the big difference was I wasn't necessarily working with people that didn't want to be at the table or didn't want to be educated on something or, or, you know, you're, I was constantly finding myself in situations where people would bring me, you know, to do a recruitment workshop and I was sent somewhere. And most of the time it was working with women that craved that attention, that craved that education. And I think the difference in moving to a college campus is that not everyone wants to hear a message that I have to share, or not everyone wants to buy into, you know, my ideas or my goals. And it's been really amazing to be able to learn higher education from more of a challenge and to really challenge students to come out of their shells and really, you know, kind of put that policy and practice, uh, you know, into real life and to see students grow and develop because I say, here's a great idea and I leave it and I let it resonate with them. And then they come, you know, to the table as a true student leader. So I do feel like to a certain level, I'm able to have, you know, a larger impact, not just on their sorority experience or their fraternity experience now, because I oversee the fraternities too, but, you know, to actually see it make a change in their lifetime experience, even when they graduate, which is really awesome. Well, and I think that sometimes is the hard thing when you move from working with members of a community or a chapter who are craving that versus those who don't know they need it yet is because those who are craving it have immediate feedback for you as the professional, as the expert, giving your blood, sweat, and tears, the, your passion project to the world, right? They are like, wow, Jamie, that was so impactful. Like I'm now able to look at it through this lens, super flexible, super open to it versus those that didn't know they need it yet. Sometimes it takes them some time. Like you were saying, like, give it, like, let it sit, let it marinate. think about it. And sometimes you never hear that feedback. Sometimes you never, especially in the work that you do speaking on college campuses now, like sometimes you'll never hear the way your story, your lived experience, your expertise changes someone's life because it doesn't click right away. Agreed. Agreed. And I feel like that moment, that light bulb moment that people call it or that clicking, you know, sometimes students don't tell you that you made that impact ever. Um, So when it does happen and, you know, four or five years later, they're like, I was doing this in my career and I thought of you and I thought of that moment when you shared your story and I'm like, 
wow, that's, that's incredible that four or five years later, you're reflecting on something I said that I wish you got in the moment, but sometimes people aren't just, you know, they're not there yet. And I think that's something, you know, working in higher education, I always have to constantly remind myself is that our 18 to 22 year olds are still growing. Their brains are still growing. Yeah. So, you know, it's really wonderful to be able to not only you know, work and share information, but to actually have those light bulb moments with people that maybe don't want to hear it when you're actually in that moment. Yeah, that's so good. So this third phase that we've been alluding to, right? Like you are now a speaker on college campuses, telling your story. Talk to us about how you decided to go beyond your advisor role, like somewhat of like an administrator on a college campus. Um, yeah, to really being an educator. Yeah. So I feel like when I moved into higher education, you know, my love and my passion projects kind of got put to the wayside, right? Because as an administrator in higher education, um, there's a lot of crisis management. There's a lot of the negative stuff. There's a lot of hard conversations. And the stuff that I really love is, right, like recruitment, education, curriculum design. You don't love crisis management? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And I might be really good at it. Like some people are like, oh, you should start loving that because I'm good at it. But I think the big piece is the, is, is those moments, right? That education, being able to help a student go from point A to point B and and them do it on their own because of information. So um, ultimately, you know, I've been working at the University of New Hampshire for four years. uh, And when the pandemic hit, I had already been started, I started writing like chapters of like my own book. That's kind of what happened. So I started writing and I said, I got to put some of my stories about being a sorority woman to paper, about being a mentor to paper. Um, And so I started writing and then I was like, I'm actually a much better speaker than I am a writer. Like I'm a good writer, but I actually enjoy the conversation. I enjoy the connection. And so um, the pandemic hit and I was like, how do I start a speaking company and how do I start, you know, being able to share my story and the things that matter to me? Because I think that's the most important part about the shift is, you know, my day job, I'm, I love fraternity and sporty life. I love working with students. Um, but I don't get to work on the things that matter to me and that I think need change and activism, that stuff doesn't happen every single day. So how could I kind of have my passion and how can I bring happiness to my life on the side in the, in those margins, right? In the areas that I'm, you know, when I come home from work, instead of sitting on the couch and watching TV, how can I do things like this and meet wonderful people like you um, oh. <laughs> and talk about things that I care about, right? Um, and so I started thinking, what are, you know, what are the areas that I started writing about that I know I want to talk about? And so, you know, the three things that came to mind immediately were recruitment and retention, sexual assault and rape prevention, and community building. And I said, mm. I think, I I think I can do this. Like I I do it all the time anyway. And I work with students on a day-to-day basis. um, And I've already, I already had like a few one-off programs. So how can I put this to paper? And so we did it. You know, I I looked up and I did a couple of things to make myself a real LLC. Um, So Jamie Devin Wilson is a full-blown business, but scary, um, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, and And it felt so empowering to be able to just like put my curriculum to paper and create my website um, and, you know, put some of those, the designs uh, to, to paper and, and to be able to share my story, which was ultimately the goal. And now I've been able to share, you know, my story of survival. I've been able to help, you know, recruitment counselors understand their impact that they make with new members on a college campus. And it's, it's just been an incredible uh, next step in my career. That is so powerful. And I think sometimes to your point, people say like, oh, I could never do what you just did. Like I could never like just start my own thing. And I think you and I are both like great examples that there's not like one right way to do it. Right. Like you don't have to like abandon everything, jump ship from your full-time gig to like throw your heart and soul into it. It can be small and consistent. Just, I don't know, practices of like, ah, uh, what am I trying to say? Like, it can just be like small, tangible, like yeah. bite-sized chunks of building out your passion and figuring yeah. out, allowing your t- yourself time to be creative. Mm-hmm. Exactly what you said, instead of just like numbing out after work, yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with like a glass of wine and a good TV show, <laughs> but like, 
what if instead of doing that every night, you took every other night to write down your stories, write down things you're passionate about, solve a problem that you're facing. Right. Um, I don't think entrepreneurship is as complicated as people make it out to be. Don't get me wrong. Like it's scary. (laughs) Like registering an LLC is scary. (laughs) Um, but I think that there's, it's so much more tangible and within reach than people yeah. like make it out to be. And I love that you, your and I's stories are so different so that yeah. they're like examples of how you can go about this. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I love what you just said, like bite size and, and, and time management. Like it's really about time management and especially for stu- like for students, college age women listening to this, I feel like one of the biggest tangible takeaways is 100% like you create your own time and to value your time. And that, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that I was doing was drowning myself in my day job and I was becoming miserable. And I'm like, I actually love this work. Like, why do I come home so upset? Like, why do I need a glass of wine? But what, what can I do during those, those bite-sized moments to actually actively, um, you know, be happy. And that's ultimately what I did. Mm, I love that. I think that's so cool. I mean, when I look back at how I built her sorority journey, like there was three months between me quitting my previous job and me launching her sorority journey. Um, and those three months, like I wasn't like, here's like my, like module one that I wrote today on like a sticky note. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't know, like so much of that happens like quietly and just like personal reflection and like revealing, allowing yourself space to be creative, but also rest, you know, like forcing yourself to be creative. Isn't going to get you to make the impact that you want to make or solve the problems that you're so aware of. So when you were like building out all this stuff, you make the LLC, you become a speaker in fraternity and sorority life. What was your goal? Like when you were going to get booked to speak, what did you want to accomplish when you showed up on a college campus virtually, obviously, I'm not sure if you had any in-person events in the past year, but what, yeah. What is your goal when you show up to a chapter or community? I think my ultimate goal is for people to realize that far too many people have very similar stories and then they're not alone. And whether mm. we're talking about something as serious as sexual assault and rape prevention um, programming, or we're talking about community building, or we're talking about recruitment, no matter what conversation I'm having, there's always somebody that shares a story. And while it might differ and their trauma might look differently or their recruitment experience might look differently, no matter what it is, they're surrounded by a community of people that love them and that care about them and that they're not alone. And so my ultimate goal is to provide that comfort for sorority women. And especially, I mean, I work with both men and women, but when I talk on college campuses in particular about some of my stuff, it gravitates towards sorority women, right? And a lot of those conversations are, they're impactful. So I think my ultimate goal is for people to see that a speaker is not a one and done program and that I'm Mm. not a one and done program and that it's not about me. I might be sharing my story. I might be giving tools on bystander intervention and, you know, empathetic disclosures and all of the things. Uh, But at the end of the day, you know, it's about them taking that information and digesting it and making it work for their community. And then I'm there for them along the ride. So I guess my ultimate goal is to be so much more than a speaker, to be that educator, to be able to help them build out programming um, to really create change and impact on their college campuses. So powerful. And I loved this conversation you and I shared last night about this, right? It's so much less about like inflating our ego and leaving with more Instagram followers or more like clout, you know, it's so much more about how can we leave with some woman or some member of that community, like positioned as the expert for their women to go to and be like, Hey, like, let's go deeper in this. The next time you host a program or this woman's facilitating the discussion questions, because she's the one who's equipped to make the change. And it's not just left to expert speaker who was there for an hour and leaves because you can't make impactful change in an hour. Sorry. You can light a spark, but there needs to be someone to carry the torch. Um, So you kind of shared with us your three like big topics that you cover. Um, 
obviously, maybe not obviously, April is sexual assault prevention month. I would love for you to share like how this came for, to whatever extent you're comfortable, like how this came to be something that you became passionate about. And yeah, maybe even like something you've learned from taking it from your own personal passion to something that you are now equipping women to navigate on a college campus. Yeah. So I think it all started with me working at the University of New Hampshire. So, you know, about 10 to 12 years after um, my sexual assault, I started having panic attacks. So to be honest, like I went for a very long time, you know, pushing it down, being a leader, you know, like taking jobs, doing everything I could to, you know, ignore my trauma. And one day, one of my students had come into my room and she said, and she said, I just want to talk to you about something. I really trust you. I know that you are a mandated reporter. I'm fine with you reporting it. And I just want you to be the one that gets me the resources. But I also like want to share my story with you. And it was this moment where like, I was heartbroken and happy at the same time. um, Because, you know, it's, it's, it's such an empowering moment to know that somebody trusts you. But it was also heartbreaking for me, because in that moment, I started to have a panic attack for the first time. And I had never felt uh, like my body responding to trauma the way that I did. And I was with a student and I'm a professional. And in the back of my mind, I was sharing you know, with myself, like, Jamie, calm down, like, you have a student in front of you, you can't react this way, like, we need to be there for them, you're the mentor, and I'm saying all these things in the back of my head, and I just had this moment of, I have to be real, so I actually ran to the bathroom, I said, I have to go to the bathroom, this is so awkward, but when I come back, I'm going to be all here for you, and so I ran to the bathroom, I had my first, like, full-blown panic, anxiety type attack, my hands, I, like, never forget the moment where like when my hands were uncontrollably shaking. And so I sat in there for about 20 minutes and I like, I was trying to think, oh my God, at the same time of having the panic attack, I was also trying to think of how do I respond to my student when I go back into the room. And so I collected myself and I went back in, we had a really amazing conversation. And I, you know, I felt like personally, I, I did everything I could do, but I knew in that moment that I wasn't the strongest version of myself and, and I knew I wanted to be. And so, um, so this was like my, after my fir- about after my first year of working at the university. So I started going to therapy um, and from therapy, I started EMDR, which is eye movement therapy, um, which is very much used with survivors of sexual assault, trauma, and a lot of military trauma. Um, and I had never heard of it before, but the therapist basically was like, there are millions of types of ways we can try to work on this. But the fact that you are still having physical manifestations of your trauma, let's, let's try something. And so I did that. And about four to six months later, I I felt like a new woman, like, to be honest. And I I hate when people say, you know, they're better, they've recovered, because I have to work it on on it every single day. There are still coping mechanisms I use if I, you know, hear something the wrong way, or if I'm caught off guard. But at the end of the day, I was able to really work through the trauma that I had in college. And I tell people to this day that it was not necessarily my sexual assault that traumatized me. It was the bystanders involved that didn't do anything. And I think that's one of the things that I hold on to and share with the women that I work with, or even fraternity men is that, you know, one of the things that as a survivor, I'm holding on to, or I held on to, was that there were bystanders that could have said things differently. They could have responded differently. They could have intervened differently. And I was not necessarily traumatized as much from the actual sexual assault. It was from the people that did nothing or, or, you know, responded the wrong way. And so uh, it got me to a place where I was recovered and I work on it every single day, but I found this space in my heart to say, this is something I care about and that other women, you know, not even women, right? 
other people on college campuses need to understand that this affects college college women in particular more than any other person in this country. And so to be able to share my story and to not only be able to hopefully motivate and inspire and empower other women to share their story, but then to also give them the tools and tips that they can use uh, to actually prevent sexual assault. All of that kind of lead, led me to saying, I felt frozen for 12 years and I was not my whole self until I was able to work through that and work through that trauma. And so, you know, that led me to Unfrozen, which is the signature program and kind of led me into the, the speaking world. Thank you so much for sharing and for your vulnerability. Um, yeah, I think, um, I think it's really beautiful how your inspiration for sharing this was came after years of realizing that you didn't know like how to address it until someone that you cared about, a student of yours was sitting in your office, trusted you so much to open up and you didn't know how to respond. And I think for any survivors listening who have like been approached by a friend to say, like to disclose their assault, like know that it's not your fault for not knowing how to respond. Like there's no like guilt or pressure, right? There's, and I hope you hear that from Jamie's story, but I, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm super thankful that you were willing to share and open up about that. I'm curious now, I'm sure you have heard many other stories, right. And become, as you become an advocate for this, um, as it is a personal subject for you, what do you think, or what is one thing that you wish more sorority women knew specifically in the sexual violence prevention space? I wish they knew to just believe survivors, period. Number one, like when a sister comes to you to disclose that not only is it not their fault and it's not and it's not the sister's fault for maybe not knowing how to respond yet, but hopefully after this podcast, they will know how to respond because I'm going to give some of those tips. But I really do. I wish they knew that at the end of the day, sexual assault prevention and sexual violence, a lot of people give a lot of tools and tips about how we're going to prevent it. But at the end of the day, the only way we're going to prevent it is by people stop perpetrating sexual assault, right? Like it is no one's fault that they are assaulted. It is no one's fault that there is violence upon them. And we're not gonna stop some person for deciding that they're going to have, you know, unwanted sexual encounters with somebody. What we're gonna do is create consent culture on our campus. What we're gonna do is create bystander intervention theory. We're gonna create opportunities for women to share their stories so it empowers other people to be good sisters. But I think what's really hard for me, especially during this month, is we hear so much about what we're gonna do to prevent sexual assault. But at the end of the day, it's very hard to say that we can prevent all of sexual assault when we are not in the mindset of a perpetrator. And we need to hold perpetrators accountable the correct way in order to move forward, right? They need to be held accountable for their actions. And our women need to know that them being held accountable, the, the perpetrators being held accountable, they should not feel any sort of remorse or sadness mm. or I think we see far one of the things I get the most is I don't want to get somebody in trouble I, I hear that a lot I don't want to get somebody in trouble I don't want their college career to end because of a mistake they made and the trauma that lives in our bodies and our minds from having somebody sexual assault sexual assault or rape it lives in us forever and so when people say that it, it rocks me to my core because everyone should be held, held accountable for their actions and the, and our survivors, it, it's just not their fault. And they need to know that. And they need to know that they're not alone. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. So as this is a podcast specifically for sorority women, right. And, um, we know that it's around one in four women who are sexually assaulted. I think it's one in eight men. Yeah. Um, while this is specifically for sorority women, 
how can our sisterhoods serve as a safe place to support survivors and advocate against sexual violence? I know you just listed a couple of things instead of being a place that says we're going to do these things or participating in a campus culture that says we're going to do these things. What can our sisterhoods do? Maybe our individual members do like tomorrow to like implement like immediately, like not some down the line, like five step plan. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think immediately it starts with empathy and I talk about this all. So good. Yeah. So, so, I mean, at the end of the day, I wish we were all educated. Like I, I think back to my assault and how I don't think anybody ever told me how to respond to a sister. And so if anybody took anything away from this, it's that when somebody talks to you about anything, that we should respond with empathy first, that we need to cognitively take a moment to actively listen, to listen to their whole story, to listen not to respond, but to understand their point of view. Because ultimately, when somebody discloses a sexual assault or comes to you about anything, as a sisterhood, as a sorority, we should be a place that we holistically and and inclusively make sure that our sisters come first and that our sisters feel supported and loved and wanted that it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning uh, about recruitment. It's that if we can create environments where there's empathy, we can create environments where we could truly make that systemic change. When we're talking about creating a culture of care and a culture of consent, all those things will stem from our sisterhoods having true wholehearted empathy. I love that. And I think empathy is something that can get so lost on us, especially um, in the upcoming months, right? When we're so focused on our own chapter and get into somewhat of a competitive mindset around recruitment um, or even just like in the spring, like wanting to position ourselves in a way that we feel like better than one another. Um, Obviously, like people are applying for jobs. And while there is, always a sense of like, quote unquote, sisterhood. I think there can be underlying like comparison. You and I talked about this last night, right? Like it's so easy as women to get caught up in that. I think sometimes we can lose empathy when we get like so caught up in comparison and competition, which is more often than not like rooted in insecurity. And so I'm curious if you have any responses or suggestions for when, if a survivor was to come to a woman listening to this podcast, or if a woman listening to this podcast as a survivor, like how she should approach a sister. Um, what are women that listen can do if a survivor approaches her, what kind of like tools or resources do you give women when you speak to their chapters? Yeah. So I think that's really important when I talk and speak to chapters and when I, even when people come after and share their stories, for the women that are listening, I'm sure we're going to have survivors listening, but I think we there it's twofold, right? I think it's about understanding the resources in the campus and on the com- in the community. So knowing who to go to, who you feel comfortable with, and ultimately making sure that the survivor understands that she has a lot of choices, right? And that that woman has different choices. So a lot of people say, "Oh, you have to report it or you need to go to the police." But That's not necessarily true. While I hope that people feel comfortable doing those things, I'm one of those people that never reported to the police. And as a sorority, this goes back to that root of competition. I know for a fact that one of the main reasons I didn't report my assault was because I felt like as a chapter that was not necessarily top tier during recruitment, that somehow my assault would negatively impact the experience for our chapter, whether it came to socials or recruitment. And I think we see that far too many times on our college campuses. I also think for survivors that are listening, you know, being able to understand when and how they share their story. And so knowing that you don't need to share your trauma just because somebody says, I heard this happened to you, or there's a rumor spreading. I think our sorority women most of the time feel that if their best friend or their big comes to them and says, I heard this, or rumor has it, a lot of people feel this pressure to share their story or 
or maybe to not right to hide and to to you know to drink or to have forms of hiding their trauma right Mm -hmm. and so most of the time I share with survivors that their story is theirs and it took me 12 years to be able to articulate my story and not cry or get upset um and it might take some people forever to never want to share their story, but that I hope that they understand that when they do get to a place where they feel that their story is something that they know it's not their fault and that they know that they have control over and they've created coping mechanisms for their trauma, that they feel that they have a supportive environment, that who they choose to tell, it's, it's like a privilege that those people hear it. And so the people that hear it, right, when we're thinking about those sorority sisters that listen, that's where that empathetic disclosure comes in. That's where our sisters need to be able to be ready to be empathetic, to actively listen, and to make sure that each survivor knows that they have not just supportive resources and books to read and speakers to talk to, but they have a true sisterhood. That is so good. I think, like you said, empathy is so much more than, well, here's my list that I got from Jamie of places you can go. Like I'm here for you right now to just like not give you answers, not be your therapist. That's not a role. That's my responsibility, but to like, love you, believe you and be with you. Like that's simple as that, right? Like not asking for advice, not telling you what you need to do, like not spreading more of the rumor, but honoring you in this space and the strength of our sisterhood that you trusted me with it. Yeah. It's really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. In my, um, in the program that I, I always share that, you know, when I first disclosed, it was to the bystander and my best friend at the time. And when I disclosed, you know, my friend, she kind of stayed silent. So, you know, it wasn't an answer, right? But the the man driving us home, he looked me straight in the eye through the rear view mirror and said, I'm sure you would have wanted it. I'm sure you wanted it. And from that moment on, I just shut down. And I share with my audiences and, and people that talk to me about my story is that the person that I next told was my now husband. You, you see a picture behind me, but the podcast won't. Um, but he is a fraternity man. Uh, and when I was a junior in college, so two years after my assault, um, I felt comfortable to be able to share my story. And his answer was, how can I help you? And for him to be able to respond with, how can I help you? And not anything else. And he just listened was a pivotal pivotal moment in my experience. Thank you so much for your honesty. And I think that's a great standard that we should set for responses, right? How can I help? How can I be here for you? What do you need from me? Um, and not forcing that an answer or response, but just being present and not. And I think another thing that goes with supporting our sister friends who experience trauma of any kind is I mean, I even like traumatic breakups, right? Yeah. Like, how can yeah. I support you? Not just through like the acceptable month of grief, but like, how can I check in with you beyond that? And yeah. now I hear you're going to therapy. Like, I'm so excited for you. Like, how can I like ask how that's going without an expectation of a response or a report, but yep. just checking in so they know I care. Yeah. And I want to circle back to something you said earlier about Uh, a lie you believed. I think you would agree it's a lie now that reporting would have impacted your chapter in recruitment. I want to talk about maybe a different correlation that you have found between the culture of a sisterhood and the way we support survivors and recruitment. Yeah, yeah, definitely a lie. I wish somebody like shook me back then, but really I didn't share, right? And so to it obviously had no correlation, right? And I think if I was to share my story with my sisterhood when I did, or to if I reported, I would hope that I would have gotten that same support that I'm sharing with you right now. I think one of the other correlations between how we support our sisters through trauma and sexual assault is and recruitment is very similar because it's that key word, support and belonging. And if a sisterhood truly 
has a support system where it's not just check boxes and you have to go here and you have to do this and you need to recruit X amount of people, but you actually care about your members, you actually support your members when you're doing the care and when you're doing the support and you're empathetic to disclosures and to our sexual assault survivors, recruitment and supporting our women through recruitment and bringing them into our sisterhood looks very similar. You know, being a, a present, you use that word, I loved it, a present person in recruitment, showing that you are sh showing everyone that you're showing up, that you care, that competition doesn't matter, right? Like a woman is going to enter our organizations because they meet our values and care about what you have to say. I know this is so cliche, but you know, people in our industry always say people join people, they don't join our organizations. And everyone has that quote. And I feel like that is so inherent in the recruitment experience. It's that our women that are coming into our sisterhoods, they should feel supported from that moment they have that one-on-one -on -one conversation at PrEP all the way through. And if you're practicing that empathy, if you're practicing that support, that that looks exactly the same as when you're supporting survivors. Mm -hmm. That's so good. And I think, I think I'm thankful that you were able to switch that script for us, right? From thinking that maybe sharing or reporting would have a negative impact on recruitment when really the culture of your sisterhood and the way you demonstrate how you're going to support, love, and be present for your sisters is going to show up in ways that you don't have to like externally like say in recruitment, right? It can be something that's just like lived and felt when potential members walk into a room because a sisterhood that feels safe to have those conversations is one that's going to be felt and perceived as one that any potential member could belong in when she walks into your room in recruitment. Yeah. I talk a lot about psychological safety and creating a culture of psychological safety and that when we're in the business world, right? People aim to create this safe net or if they have a good, if they have a good culture in their communities and their uh, companies, they have this psychological safety that somebody could be themselves wholeheartedly, that they can mess up on a project, that they can say something, but no matter what they do, they have the safety net of care and, and, and promise that you have this place, no matter what that you can fall on. And I think that is resonated in the experience of a survivor feeling safe in their organization if they have that supportive environment and also when a woman walks through into a chapter house for recruitment. So good. Oh, thank you so much for sharing. And as we preface at the beginning, right, this isn't a light conversation. Um, this isn't something that, this isn't just normal another podcast episode on your sorority journey, right? This is carries a little bit more depth and I'm really glad that we were able to have you on as we end April and maybe go into a couple months where women might feel a little bit more alone if they, they haven't reported or haven't um, been able to process this from years past that this gives them some space and a reminder that their sisters are there for them, that like you said in the beginning, even talking about recruitment, right? We have a lot more shared experiences than we would think. Yeah. And that's something that we can utilize to feel more together. So thank you for that. Thank you so much. Um, anything else you want to close on, Jamie? Oh, well, well, thank you for having me. But I really, you know, I think you shared it perfectly. It's just that for those that are listening, you know, you're not alone and that whether you are a survivor of trauma or you're going through this month and uh, I have a lot of women say, I didn't even realize I was sexually assaulted and you came until you came to speak. And so if your listeners are having those moments that they can definitely know that I'm in their corner, whether, you know, whether I'm there as a speaker or here as a human being, that there are ways to connect with me. And I'm sure we'll share that information with the podcast, but I, I have um, a new book, right? I have a chapter in a book called From Letters to Leaders and chapter five is my program on Frozen. And so for 
women that are listening that want maybe a little bit more information. I felt like with our conversation, I didn't want to list off my bystander intervention program, right? Unfrozen is actually an acronym, right? And each letter is a step that people can take to, to, to intervene. I don't think that listing all that stuff out right now for listeners is something that they're going to want to take away, but I think it's important information. And so if people want access to that, um, they can find it in the book or, you know, meet with me and we can talk about coming to their campus. Yeah, perfect. Well, we will link the book in the show notes and you'll be able to find Jamie through all of our promotion on social media. So thank you for sharing a little bit more about what you do and how women can go deeper with you if this really resonated with them. Um, Obviously, even if Jamie hasn't spoken at your campus, she's now a sister friend of yours through the podcast. So make sure to connect with her if anything really resonated with you. And Jamie, thank you again for sharing your story on the podcast today. Of course. I think sometimes as chapter leaders or even women sitting in on sexual assault prevention programming, it can feel so overwhelming, so intimidating to try to even start to solve this nationwide crisis that we're facing of a prominence of sexual assault and sexual violence on college campuses. I want you to remove the weight or burden you feel that it's your responsibility to solve this systemic and nationwide problem and instead own what you can do on another side of it, right? Own how you can stand up as a bystander when you see something. Own how you can believe sisters when they come to you or cultivate a culture in your chapter that when sisters bring anything that's heavy on their heart, if it's sexual assault or a conflict with a parent or failing a midterm, that you can always accept that regardless of its severity with care, support, and empathy. When we cultivate cultures of empathy in general, our women are going to feel so much safer to share the heaviest things, the most traumatic experiences that they've had in the safety of our sisterhood. Regardless of how you've handled those conversations in the past, if you were listening to a survivor or if you're listening and have lived through this experience, I want you to remove any regret or frustration with yourself. It is not your fault that you didn't know how to respond. It is not your fault that you didn't know what to say. And I just hope that hearing Jamie speak today about her personal experience about not knowing how to respond can really inspire you to start to take the time to work through the discomfort, work to seek healing in your life, whatever that looks like, so that you can be in a place to respond in whatever circumstance that looks like in the future We are here for you, sister. We love you. As Jamie said at several times throughout the episode, you are not alone, regardless of where you are. We shared the rain hotline at the beginning of the episode, but know that both Jamie and I are here for you if you need someone to talk to. And there are countless resources on your college campus that we would love to help you get in touch with if you need some help. Thanks for tuning in to the Your Sorority Journey podcast this week. If this episode left you with any guidance or confidence to navigate your sorority membership, we would love to hear from you. Share a screenshot of this episode on your Instagram story and tag Her Sorority Journey so we can know what resonated with you. Also, be sure to leave a review wherever you listen so more sister friends can find this guidance just like you. Here for you always, sister. 